Hello and welcome back to the Bailey Bixby podcast. This episode is pretty excited about this one as I'm getting to uh, interviewing someone that is in a field that I feel is very difficult to understand. Definitely for me, I think that it's got a lot of ins and outs and it's just hard to understand. It's a lot of feel like from an edu- education standpoint that I think this is just a job that you need to have really good photographic memory pretty much and you need to be extremely intelligent and just be the smartest person in the room in in my terms I would say um so this is episode 4 with Rick Hodsdon Richard Hodsdon we'll call him that's his formal attorney name he's known as rick in the neighborhood as he's my across the street neighbor um pretty interesting guy i'm excited about it all right rick why don't you introduce yourself a little bit what uh where you're from what you do and kind of what your what your job title is all right well my name is rick hodgson or richard hodgson according to my driver's license I, for 33 years as of today, have been an assistant Washington County attorney. Before that, I spent a year in private practice, and before that, I spent eight years in the Minnesota Attorney General's office. As an assistant Washington County attorney in Stillwater, Minnesota, I um, am one of about 60 people in the office, one of about 25 or so attorneys, um, like current assignment is primarily in the civil division of the office. I've pretty much done everything in the office that an attorney at prosecutor's office would do. I've prosecution, civil legal advice, juvenile charging, sex offender commitments, child protection, uh, and for 10 years I was the second in command of the office and ran the show under the county attorney. Okay, can you explain like the uh, difference between civil and criminal law and why you chose to practice civil law? Actually, I've done both over the years. In oh, you've done both. Okay. <laughs> yep. So to like um, other states like Iowa, South Dakota, in the, in the Midwest, uh, many states uh, have uh, what they call for, go- for, for local government, county government, for example, they have corporate counsel like Wisconsin does, and then they have what's called district attorney. The district attorneys are elected through criminal prosecution. The corporate counsel are typically appointed or hired by the county administration, county board, and provide all the civil legal advice. In a place like Minnesota, the elected uh, county attorney uh, does does it all, does the civil and the criminal. The criminal uh, prosecution in our office is primary felonies and juvenile delinquencies. City attorneys handle misdemeanors and uh, lower level of offenses. And then the civil part of the office is we provide the civil legal advice to uh, the county board and all the county departments. So in terms of um, contract management, civil litigation, eminent domain, civil commitments of mentally ill individuals, sex offenders, and another big part for county attorneys in Minnesota is uh, child support enforcement and collection. Uh, is there kind of a difference of like the atmosphere between the different, like a civil case and like a criminal case? Can you feel like a, a different vibe to it kind of? They're, they're very different in the sense that uh, in, in a criminal case, uh, the the rules are very much stacked in favor of a criminal suspect. The old saying is it's better that 10 guilty people go free than one innocent person be convicted. 
Um, the rules, uh, the, the proof beyond a reasonable doubt uh, is, the, is the level of proof. In civil cases, it's a little bit more of a level of playing field. In civil cases, sometimes the county is, is the plaintiff, the, the entity bringing the lawsuit. Uh, sometimes it's the defendant. But the burden of proof is, is a, a lower burden of proof. The burden in civil cases is usually preponderance of evidence compared to proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, criminal involves people's freedom. Uh, civil involve typically or often involves people's money. Oh, okay. Yeah, that ma- that makes sense. What do you like enjoy doing, or what do you enjoy more, the civil or criminal side? I like the mix, uh, and I yep. have elected for for, for an office side. Uh, currently, I'm the only person in the office that has has his legs in both worlds. Most of the time, uh, if you're going to be in an office in the Twin Cities Metro, you're either going to do full-time criminal prosecution or full-time civil or sometimes full-time juvenile work. Uh, you develop some specialty, some specialized expertise. But because I've done so much and been here so long, I kind of live in both worlds. I'm, I'm unique that way. Now, yeah. small offices where you might only be a one or two person shop, they have to do it all. Mm-hmm. They do everything. So then would you say that public speaking is a, is a big skill of yours? I know that like pretty much in any field or job that you're going to be in, you're, you're kind of going to want a good skill of public speaking. Would you say that you're pretty good at that? Yeah. Uh, without sounding immodest, I'm very good at it. Um, yeah. I started, I started in, in seventh grade or maybe eighth, seventh grade, eighth grade, in speech and debate, did that all the way through junior high, high school, uh, did, did trial practice as a lawyer, as a law student. I've been doing that all my life in terms of litigation and presentation. Mm-hmm. I teach a lot. Uh, I also have, besides, I, I have taught literally tens of thousands of individuals to uh, Northwestern University School of Police Staff and Command, through Minsku, through various continuing education. Uh, so, you know, I, sure I've talked, I've probably done presentations live and now with the internet, easily in excess of a couple hundred thousand people over the years. Okay. Yeah, I guess that kind of leads into now of like, how did you how did you get into the legal field, or how did you know that that's what you wanted to do for a career? Well, I was trying to decide between being a doctor and being a lawyer, and I decided I hated math, so I decided. <laughs> uh, it's I wanted to do something that made a difference uh, after I'm gone, uh, and that was an intellectual challenge and to have an impact on society. Uh, if I so that made me uh, point in the direction of law. If I wanted to make money, I shouldn't have gone into government law, but nevertheless, the money wasn't primarily motivator. It was the intellectual challenge uh, and the idea that I could potentially make a difference uh, in the world bigger than my own. So that's why I picked the law. So, yeah, that's a big thing for me as well as just finding something that I enjoy and I kind of, my, with, going into sales, I just want to help people. That's like a, a passion of mine is connecting and helping. And it's not about the money. So would you say that finding a job that you enjoy or getting into a career that you enjoy is important for yourself to become successful? I think it probably de- it probably depends on how you measure success. If you measure success by possessions and things, uh, you're going to... Uh, that's going to be your most important factor. But an old saying that wise old guy once said long, long ago that I heard is find a profession you love and the money will follow. It may not make you rich, but it will be enough to make you happy. And I, I think that's a totally valid statement. Yep, I would agree. So what, is, what does success mean to you? How would you define that? Um. 
success to me, corny as it sounds, is the world's going to be a better place because I was here. Yeah. But he knows it was me that made it better. It just is better. And in that sense, I think I've been successful so far. I'm not done yet. Mm -hmm. I won't be done until they start throwing the dirt on my face. Yeah. Because I'm going to keep at it. Yep. Well, that's good. We need more people like you out there doing it for a good cause and not just doing it for the money and all that stuff. I know that's just a, that's important for me is finding a passion. And then I, I agree that the money's, the money's going to follow once you are kind of doing something that you enjoy. Or if you really, you'll find a, a rich, a, a rich spouse that'll t put up with you doing it all for free and then you could really live it up but <laughs> yeah <laughs> yep that's that's the uh advice i get from my grandfather too <laughs> so jumping into kind of more of the career side now i i noticed i looked at your website and would it be okay for me to uh post your website on when i post this episode would it be okay to put that out there it is. It's a little dated because I've been so busy with all stuff I haven't kept. Yep. Yeah. Mention that because I've talked to my website person just the other day uh, about getting things up and, and up to speed and operational. But to the extent it illustrates the point, that's not a problem. I think you're, you're hitting the mic right now. <laughs> uh -oh. Working now? Yeah, we're good. So getting on to the career side. Uh, so when I was looking, getting back to your website, um, what is, what's the national award winning thing with like the, the gang prosecutor? What's, what's that all about? I was, that was definitely sparked interest. That was an, uh, quite a few years back. Um, when I was, it's a scratch award I think you're talking about. Uh, I was um, one of two lawyers uh, that uh, in my office, I was a lead lawyer, and the guy who's now the county attorney was my, what we call second chair of my assistant. We put together, uh, with the assistance of the Department of Corrections uh, and the Washington County Sheriff's Office, um, to this day in the state of Minnesota, it's the largest single uh, state-based a racketeering prosecution in the history of the state of Minnesota. We ended up with um, 31, 32, uh, as I recall, I think it was 31 total defendants. They were um, extortion, drug smugglers, uh, uh, folks in Stillwater Prison. And they were, um, at the time, uh, and still pretty much to the day, uh, on the street, a lot of the gangs, gangs for disciples, bloods, Latin kings are big enough. They can still what they call click up or form and stay with their gang units inside prison. Still want a prison being one of the two prisons in Washington County. Um, the bikers were so small on the street they might be you know beaten as hell's angels and uh, sons of silence. You know the various uh, street gangs um, might be thumping on each other, but they were so small in the prison that they got together and there's an organization. Uh, Minnesota had one, Colorado, they call themselves the Prison Motorcycle Brotherhood. They basically agree, huh. once you go inside, you set aside your colors, you click up together, and hang out as, as a gang within the prison. And what they had uh, implemented is a system of drug smuggling, uh, in which uh, they were making money by having... Uh, wives, girlfriends, sisters, uh, mules, basically, uh, during visiting and other ways, mule and dope into the prison, and then they'd sell the dope in the prison. Dope in the prison is worth 20 times what it was on the street. And so um, that's uh, what they're, that was, that was the nature of the racketeering operation. So we uh, you know, prosecuted and convicted, like I say, in excess of, of 30 uh, defendants. For, for this activity, it was kind of a big deal. So the um, that was the National Gang Award. Huh. That is definitely interesting, and 
that that kind of just the whole gang thing i'm always weary about all that kind of stuff so what's it i mean being in a courtroom dealing with that kind of stuff what is what's that feeling like being around that and knowing that you're in there with a with a criminal that's pretty dangerous and all sorts it's not a problem in the courtroom because you have court security you have bailiffs yeah security systems it does uh, cause you over time, and you've been doing this as long as I have, it either makes you cautious, cynical, or suspicious uh, mm-hmm. uh, on the streets, in the community, because you'll walk through a, a grocery store and you'll get one of these funny looks from somebody pushing a shopping cart, and they know they know you from somewhere. But in the courtroom, they're used to you look, it, it's like, you see somebody in a uniform that you see in a uniform day in and day out, you recognize them in a uniform. You see them out of uniform. Like, I know that person from somewhere, but where? Um, but you get, but by now I've had that experience so many times. I get that look and I go, all right, well, it's possible that that person was a juror. It's possible that person was a witness or a victim. Mm-hmm. But it's also possible that was somebody I prosecuted. So um, you learn if you do this as long as I had. Yeah. The military term is situational awareness. You you have that. You, 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 just so you, you kind of can, like, read their body language since you've been doing it so long? You can read the fact that they think they know you or at least this is familiar. How mm-hmm. does that you don't necessarily know? So, um, you know, there's been more than one occasion where um, someone's approached me and I have a healthy sense of caution. I I spend my life with cops. So I've learned a whole lot of stuff in terms of what I need to know. Uh, And I may have someone approach me from a, I look at it from a cautious perspective and say, I was a juror on the blah, blah, blah case in which you sent some murder to prison. That, that's, that's usually not a bad thing. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's definitely interesting, I guess. Um, so is it, do people ever get falsely accused? Like, is that rare? Does that happen from time to time? I mean, I know in those big cases, there's people that get falsely accused. So they say, does that, does that happen for smaller stuff? Like, will things get mixed up and you find yourself, I don't know, accusing them wrongly? Like, has that ever happened? Have you ever heard of anything like that that's been around you? Well, I, I think are people falsely accused? Yes. But but accused is very different than being falsely prosecuted. Um, probably some of the, the most frequent falsely accused kind of things is that I'll, that I'll see, uh, that I've seen in my career is, for example, uh, couples going through a divorce and one or the other tends to bring out the nuclear weapon, uh, claiming either the dad, the mom, the mom's new boyfriend, the dad's new girlfriend, whatever the case might be, is physically or sexually abusing the kid. Uh, those, in terms of just the, the use of the word accusation, those I think are probably some, in my life's experience, it may not be true everywhere, are um, cases in which there's a, a significant risk sometimes of false accusation. Uh, another aspect of false accusations is people think they've been swindled, um, mm-hmm. or they want somebody prosecuted for theft by swindle, theft by trick, um, and so they make the they make the complaint to the police, the, the, the accusation, whatever the case you want to call it, and they weren't swindled. They were probably they made a bad business decision, um, but the person that took advantage of them didn't commit a crime. Once someone's formally charged, because there's a, a process, just because someone's even arrested as a prosecutor, I have an obligation. Uh, an ethical obligation, and I like to think I follow. I know I follow it. I like to think all my mm-hmm. time. There are certainly cases in in some states where it hasn't happened, where you know where the prosecutors have suppressed evidence and done bad things, and 
If they send those prosecutors to prison and make them lose their license, I'm all for it. But the cases um, that I get, case gets presented to me, I have to not only look at it, do I believe there's probable cause to believe the person did a crime, and, but I also have to believe uh, and find ethically that uh, not only do I believe there's probable cause, but above and beyond that, if this case goes to trial, there's a reasonable likelihood that a jury will convict someone. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's a significantly higher standard. And an ethical prosecutor uh, is going to um, be a, the major check against wrongful prosecutions isn't a criminal defense lawyer. When I started out in law school, I thought, um, you know, I'm going to defend the rights of people and I'm going to defend and do the right thing. And so I'll probably become a criminal defense lawyer. And within about two weeks of my first criminal law class, it dawned on me. Uh, well, first of all, most of the people who get arrested and charged are, are guilty uh, and they prey on people. If I'm going to really protect the public, I should be thinking about the victims. And for those people who are wrongfully accused, I have a greater ability as a prosecutor to protect their constitutional rights than a defense lawyer does because I simply don't charge the case. Yeah. Defense lawyer, all they can do is take pot shots and nitpick at a decision that somebody else made. Prosecutors truly are in control of who gets charged or doesn't get charged for the most part. So if I think a a citation has been wrongfully issued, I have the authority to simply dismiss it. And I think um, the vast majority of my colleagues across the country would do exactly that. So there are wrongful uh, convictions. Uh, one of the, the data shows one of the biggest risks of a wrongful conviction after a trial uh, is uh, eyewitness identification. Eyewitness identification has been one of the major causes of people doing bunch of time in prison for a crime that they didn't commit. Now with forensic evidence like DNA and other bio, biometric and biological evidence, many of those people uh, are being released. But uh, eyewitness identification is probably one of the biggest things. The case goes to trial. The prosecutor acted in good faith that a witness said, I'm absolutely certain that's the person who committed the robbery, rape, murder. And then down the road it turns out well, the eyewitness wasn't lying. They weren't committing perjury. They really did believe that. They were just wrong. Mm-hmm. You might be blocking your mic right now. Careful how I hold my iPad. Uh, hold it down to the corner. That should be better. Let's see if it does it sound better. Here. Can you hear? Yeah, there we go. All right. So I guess touching off of that, what what would you say your favorite part about being an attorney is? Um, the intellectual challenge, especially on the civil side. Um, we have a, a lawyer in my office, and uh, she's very bright. She's been a prosecutor for quite a few years, and wanted to tr- for for lots of different reasons wanted to, to transfer over to the civil division. We had a vacancy. And, you know, within a couple of months she goes, you know, I thought being you know, a prosecutor was, was intellectually uh, challenging and stimulating. But, you know, if you think about it, if, if you're prosecuting criminal cases, it's a lot of the same stuff over and over again. And as she said, um, on this civil side, every day is different and every situation has got nuances that you have to work your way through. Um, the intellectual challenge is, I think, one of the more uh, positive things uh, that I like about it. Plus, you know, as I said earlier, the idea I can make a difference. Sorry, you're kind of mumbling. I, I, you might be blocking your mic right now. I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of. Let me take. That might be better. Uh, all right. Now my iPad's naked. Now we should be in good shape. There. There we go. Um, so you said, here, kind of rewind a little bit. You're talking about, so your favorite part in the civil cases, you're doing the uh, 
kind of the same thing every time. I think that's where it you kind in the of criminal, in the criminal case, a lot of it becomes almost repetitive. Uh, when I was okay. doing all the dope prosecutions, my trial preparation for the narcs was remember the questions I asked you the last five cases like this that we tried where you said I went up and I bought dope from that guy, took it to the lab and it was dope? Yeah. Well, that's same questions again. Whereas on the civil side, besides the ability to make a difference, it's intellectually more challenging. There's a lot more variations. There's a lot more nuances. Hmm. Okay. What's what's kind of like the, uh, have you ever had like your favorite trial or anything of sorts like that? Um, I, I, I'm not sure. I don't know if I'd call it favorite. Yeah, had, but have you ever had like a a really interesting one that kind of sticks with you? I've had lots of those. Lots. Um, I uh, one of them is uh, you can go to the ID channel and watch an hour movie about uh, watch an hour show about it. Uh, this one I prosecuted a twenty year old cold case homicide that uh, occurred. Eighteen year old uh, young woman was murdered down in Afton, Minnesota, by uh, a guy named Joseph Turry Jr. Uh, it took us 20 years and oh. we convicted him. He's a serial killer. He's in prison for um, eight murders and we like him for several more. Uh, that was a major case. I did the prison motorcycle brotherhood cases I told you about. The, um, we've done, I've gotten uh, multiple other cold case homicides uh, that I've done. Uh, the ones that uh, probably the most troubling are the, the toddler baby infant death cases, um, mm -hmm. those ones come back to haunt me. Uh, I've had serial rapists, serial killers. Uh, the, um, so that, yeah, on the criminal side, there's lots of cases that I might prefer to forget, but I never will. Yeah, those kind of stick with you. And those definitely could be disturbing. I know just like, watching trials on tv or you know those documentaries of serial killers i mean people love watching those and like inter being entertained by them and i'm not a fan of them because i think they're personally pretty disturbing <laughs> could you could you describe what that one serial killer case was kind of just give me kind of like a a summary of that yeah uh it was in may um of 1978. Uh, so um, uh, Marlos Woolenhouse was the victim's name. She lived with uh, her family in Afton. Um, she uh, came home uh, after school. She was about literally two to three weeks away from graduation from uh, Stillwater High School. Uh, and um, the jury ultimately found, they didn't know for, like I say, again, for get a verdict for almost 20 years but um he beat her head in with a hammer uh a carpenter type hammer oh my uh, gosh uh left her uh you know bleeding out with a fractured skull and puncture wounds to her skull in in her entryway of her house her mother came home um found her called the ambulance and a day or two later she passed away um and then they, uh, the sheriff's office worked that case, uh, followed tons of different leads, got, you know, did not result in, a, in any kind of a case for a long, long time. Uh, and a number of years later, the state uh, crime bureau, the BCA, created a, a cold case unit, like you see on TV. Uh, one of the cases that they looked at, they, I worked actually multiple cases because they liked working with me. They were friends of mine. I worked multiple cases. We solved a couple of Washington County cold case homicides, but that one was one of them. Um, and um, way back, um, shortly after the homicide, there was a guy who turned out to be Joe Turry Jr., the person ultimately convicted. He was in, in jail in Sherburne County for killing another young woman. He, he had to think he would, he would um, hit on... Uh, waitresses, um, hmm. and then when they'd tell him to buzz off, he'd get mad and he'd stalk them and kill them. And he did that to a, a young woman in uh, at a Perkins uh, cafe in uh, West St. Paul. 
he was in prison, or excuse me, in jail on, um, in Sherburne County uh, because it, he had dumped her body. He, he grabbed her, killed her, dumped her up in Sherburne County, which is up by Elk River. And um, so he was in jail up there. There was a jailhouse informant uh, that uh, he got friendly with. And uh, he wrote a confession. He wrote multiple confessions, including uh, killing a family of, of four people. The fifth person survived in St. Cloud and killing uh, Marlis. He wrote it out because the jailhouse informant convinced him that uh, well, he was going to get convicted. But if he showed out how crazy he was, instead of going to prison, they'd send him to St. Peter um, State Hospital, Mental Hospital. So um, he dictated his confession to the informant. The informant wrote it out on a legal pad, and then he signed them all. And um, but for what what happened is they they gave the detective uh, the the detectives in Washington County as to my case the information, but the detectives had previously um, looked at uh, this individual and uh, found, well, he has an alibi. This is a false confession because Joe Turry was working at a Ford motor plant in St. Paul uh, when the murder occurred. So hmm. it's obviously a false confession. So they put it on the shelf and, and got rid of it. And so when they reactivated many years later, the cold case, um, I told the BC agents I had the files and I gave them a huge long laundry list of things to do. And I said, the first thing you have to do is disprove this if you're going to look at some alternative suspect you got to prove disprove joe turry jr's confession and i go okay uh so one of the things they did in that pro uh, in that process is they went back and fortunately ford motor company being the big bureaucracy it is they had still had records from that long ago um, but when they looked at the timesheet records the person who was working at the ford motor plant when the when the murder occurred was Joe Turry Sr., this guy's dad. So he didn't have an alibi for the time of the murder. And that caused us to keep moving along on the case and ultimately grand jury indicted him and we went to trial and he was convicted uh, in uh, 19... Uh, literally, like I said, a 20-year-old homicide. Wow. And my, my friend, uh, the BC, the primary BC agent, I... I to this day, when I run into him, I, I uh, joke now, I tease him, I says, you know, on that case, on Marlis's murder, I gave you one simple job to prove that Joe Turry didn't do it, and you messed that up. <laughs> uh, so, with your part in this, are you doing any investigating yourself and trying to figure things out? Or are people doing that and then bringing the information to you and you kind of make your opinions off of that? On a lot of the cases, it's a little bit of, we don't, I, you know, it's like you see on TV where the prosecutors go out and stand around in the scene and do all that kind of stuff. That that TV aspect, maybe it happens some places, but it really yeah. happens in Minnesota. You're, you're more, um, you're, you're not the field coach. You're the one up in, you know, you're the one up in the balcony watching plays. You're looking at what you've got. Here's what we need. Here's where to go. So you're, you're definitely running or coaching but you're not doing the, the cops and robbers field stuff that you, you see like that happens on tv yeah so you're not like doing the detective work you're kind of like the offensive coordinator <laughs> that, that's a good way to put it you're right yeah. because if because you can't be uh you have to, in fact we are very cautious i uh, because if you become a witness then you can't be a prosecutor on the case oh okay we have to make sure that we create a substantial distance. I'm not going to talk direct, you know, like on like on Law and Order, where they where they bring in the suspects and their lawyer and they're talking in the conference room and they're, yeah. that's that's not going to happen in real. That's good drama, perhaps, but it's not going to happen in real life because if somebody confesses and I hear them, I'm no longer able to prosecute the case because now I'm a witness. So we I'm much more like I say, I'm going to like with the. Uh, on, on a large, like the racketeering case or some of these more larger complex cases, I might give a, you know, a 
10 page to-do list, do this, do this, do this, and here's why. Now, a lot of the simple cases, somebody, somebody breaks into a house, uh, they collect their DNA, they go get a search warrant, they find their stuff, the person confesses. There's very little for me to do in terms of investigation because it's all been done by good, competent investigators. Mm-hmm. But on the larger, more complex cases, then it's going to be more, let's do this. Much more likely also that we're the, as you say, the offensive coordinator once the case is charged, because cases are charged um, far earlier than they're ready for trial. So you charge a case, but uh, now you're going to have to go out um, and and get the case if get the case ready for trial. So then there's a far more to do, and that's mm-hmm. when when somebody like a prosecutor becomes far more hands-on, again, with a long laundry list of get this, do that, do interview this, do this, do this. But the prosecutors themselves, other than maybe dealing, other than witness preparation, you're not going to have that level of interaction like you see on TV. Yeah. So before you go into a trial, are you, are you doing a lot of preparation? Like, do you have a lot of notes that you're studying? And like, before you go in there, you kind of, you got to, know exactly what you're talking about and like kind of giving why so that I guess are you the one kind of you're not trying to convince the jury are you you're kind of making the decision no we're trying to figure out how to whether it's a civil case or a criminal case yes okay. we're going to convince a jury okay if it's a, if it's a civil case in which we've been sued because some inmate says a staff member beat him up um, we're trying to convince the jury either it didn't happen or the amount of force used was proper. If it's a criminal case or a delinquency case, we're, we're going to try and convince the jury beyond a reasonable doubt that the person we've, we've charged did it. Um, so yeah, it's, the legal system is a, is an advocate based system and we are advocates on behalf of our yep. interests. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, I, I know the justice system, all that, it's, it's way over my head and it's hard for me to kind of put it into perspective, but hearing this definitely helps out a lot and kind of opens my eyes on how things work and like the differences between things. So kind of turning back the clock here, can you, like going through law school, what was, what was that like? Was it, was it challenging for you or easy? I know that a lot of um, kind of prosecutors or lawyers, they're kind of, they kind of almost have like a photographic memory. I've got a pretty good memory. Uh, and I read encyclopedias cover to cover as a kid. Uh, so <laughs> yes. if, if, if you ever do, you know, if we ever get families together to, and trade, play trivia pursuit, people like having me around, uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, at least for stuff that isn't pop culture, history and geography and all that other fancy stuff. Um, law school wasn't particularly difficult after I got over the mythology. Mm-hmm. It was going to be difficult um, because everybody, you know, I had like a 3.95 average or something when I graduated uh, yeah. college. I was first in my class in high school, you know, might even be first in my class in college. I'm not sure. Um but everybody kept saying, oh, yeah, law school is so different. You're going to have to use a whole different approach. So the first half of the first semester, I, I fell for that. And I made it way more difficult than it had to be. And I go, ah, that's bullshit. Yeah. Uh, I'll just go back to the way I used to do stuff. And I graduated law school magna cum laude. So uh, it wasn't nice. all that tough for me. Um, but um, so, uh, and I had enough time, you know, uh, instead of just being grinded out study groups and all the stuff you see in the movies, um, I graduated by the time I graduated law school because I uh, I went to the U of M law school mm-hmm. and they had uh, had started a clinical program. So uh, and there's a student practice rule where you can it's almost like being it's almost like medical internship, but it's a student they call it in the legal business student practice rule. So by the time I graduated law school, I had uh, I had already tried a couple of dozen uh, misdemeanor jury trials and several hundred uh, misdemeanor court trials. Oh, wow. Civil, uh, civil practice, handled people's divorces, some personal injury cases, contract disputes because of the clinical programs. So, um, so I knew I wanted to do litigation. 
as opposed to sit around and write people's wills and contracts all day. So um, I had a so I had an advantage there. Law school was not particularly problematic for me. Yeah, I just I know I've heard that everyone just says law school is so hard and I've kind of thought about it because just I think sales and law school and talking and public speaking they kind of go hand in hand so it definitely has been a thought in my mind but I just I don't know if I could go to school for another 40 years that just really isn't in my five-year plan 10-year plan but would you say you had sorry go ahead well, the other another respect to law school is um, the number of people who who not only go to law school but become lawyers and get licensed mm-hmm. and who actually uh, litigate. It's a small percentage. Yeah. Um, it's like you know, it's like going to medical school. Not everybody who goes to medical school becomes uh, a transplant surgeon or an orthopedic surgeon or even a surgeon, as far as that goes. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a small cadre. I, a lot of the people I went to law school with uh, never intended to ever see the inside of a courtroom. Huh. So it really depends on what, what your interest is. Yeah. Um, if, people, if people are interested in you know, litigation, then absolutely public speaking uh, is something to, um, to pursue as a you know, college, high school, you know, undergrad, whatever. But the other thing I, when I do uh, like go out to Stillwater High School, somebody says, well, I might want to be a lawyer and be a trial or a litigator. You know, what kind of, what should I do in high school and college to get myself ready for it? One of the things I tell them is I said, okay, speech debate's great because it's going to teach you discipline and research skills. Yeah. The other thing you should do is um, join, uh, uh, join the theater uh, department. Oh, yeah. Be in plays. Because if you really think about it, the courtroom is just basically a big stage. Yep. And then, you know, uh, the th- the, some of the voice projection, some of the gestures, even just, um, I don't know if you ever were in theater, Bailey, but um, one of the things you teach, learn in theater is hit your mark. Where to stand on the stage to do certain things. Oh. And, and um, I, I remember long ago I had a criminal defense lawyer who said, because I... I'm making my argument to the jury and I'm talking about that man, that man, that man. And every time he says, how can you do that? Your, your back is completely to us, to the defendant, to my client. <laughs> and he says, and, and your finger, you pointed, you hit him right between the eyes every time you pointed at him. <laughs> you know, and I'm going to myself, how do you not know you hit your mark? <laughs> yeah. we've, we've been in this, we've been on this stage for a week. You don't know where, you know, desks don't move, jurors don't move. But it, it never occurred to me that people wouldn't know that. Um, so um, if, if, if litigation is, is something that people are interested in as, as lawyers, then speech debate, but theaters, the other big three, those are the three I told them. That's interesting. That's definitely good for... Uh... I think younger, a younger crowd to hear and to kind of pick up some things early to kind of develop their skills early and kind of get ahead of the schedule, I guess, before they hit college. That definitely is interesting. I never, never thought about that. I have an uncle that he went through theater and stuff and he's a, he's an art, he's an art or graphic designer. So he kind of went a different route with it, but he's, he's a pretty good, uh, person that standing up in front of a crowd and he's he's pretty funny so i never thought about that that's that's a good point so i guess people that are uh thinking about law school maybe think about being in theater (laughs) seriously at least if now again if you never want to if your goal is to never get into a courtroom you want to sit and do corp you know work for bill gates and do 10 billion dollar transactions you don't care. Then you want to mm-hmm. probably be an English major and make sure you got all the, you know, spelling and punctuation stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but if, but if um, more of a, a public interaction, um, it's useful. 
And it also helps if you want to, you know, I know people went to law school. I went to law school with them and they were using their law degrees uh, with varying degrees of success, as it turns out, to become a politician. Well, God, politics is pure theater. You, yeah. I would agree on that, especially watching everything on the news these days. It just is kind of like theatrical. Like if that's the word, it's I'm just like, oh my gosh, they're kind of just putting on a putting on a show instead of doing their what they should be doing. That's what I. That's the way I put it. Yeah. So going off of that, did you have mentors kind of helping you along the way? I know that. I've talked to a lawyer before, just kind of like getting an idea of what they do, like way back. And they said that they had import, important mentors and they read books all the time. Um, in, in terms of some of the skill sets, uh, I think I didn't have lawyer mentors in the same sense. Uh, my debate, my, uh, my I guess uh, just mentors in general, not not lawyer mentors. Yeah, my debate coaches were probably my debate and speech coaches at high school and college were probably helped steer things in that direction. Yep. But um, but I've been you know I was an only child for five years. I was pretty self motivated. Always have been. So uh, I taught myself how to play chess. Um, huh. I read a book and learned how to do it. And yeah. Those kind of things. So. Um, so I, I think in that sense, um, I have not had the, that same kind of mentor over the last many years, especially now in the last probably five to 10 with, I guess, lawyers that are almost, you know, about the age of my kids now. I think uh, if you ask them, they would tell you that uh, I'm their mentor. I know a couple of them were, it was funny, a couple of months ago, they were arguing about or discussing some point uh, that they had a disagreement on and I over, I was just walking by and one of them said, well, I don't know, let's go ask Yoda. And I go <laughs> and look up and there are two of them are standing in my doorway at my office. Um, I took, and I, which I took actually as a, as a very, you know, endearing compliment. So. Yeah, no, definitely. It's funny I'm, you say that. Um, my, my sales coach at school, she, People would actually call her Yoda or the Jedi Master. <laughs> so that's pretty funny you say that. You were saying something there towards the end, so I cut you off. No, I no, I, I think that's a compliment to your instructor. Um, yeah, definitely. And that's another example of what I said early on that you know my definition of success is then I'm succeeding to the next to the next generation of the people that work in my office too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you kind of, you, you try to leave your mark on the, the younger generation and kind of keep this world in good hands as far as the legal system and law enforcement, criminal justice and, yep. as well. Yeah. I mean, like literally, like I say, thousands and thousands of people I, I've trained, mm -hmm. um, and hopefully they're better at what they do because of it. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Do you have any book recommendations that I could I could uh, give to my listeners or even myself? I'm always looking for a good uh, book to get into. Well, I I don't. As a kid, I read science fiction like crazy, tons and tons of it. I don't read fiction anymore because. Um, by now in my life, I've read so many defendants' stories of what happened. I figure that's enough fiction for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. But um, what I, most now, I don't, don't. The books I read now are all professional work related, but in ter, but I listen to tons of books. Uh, I don't listen to radio unless mm -hmm. my wife happens to be in the car with me. So there is so much, you know. You can download so many, you know, interesting books on history, biography. Um, my recommendation is find people who interest you in history and find a biography, autobiography of them um, and or events. Uh, and you will learn incredible amount of information about character, leadership, even 
even if you're not trying to look for leadership books, um, mm-hmm. you, uh, I just finished one uh, book on CD uh, the other day, uh, you know, The Allies. It's about Winston Churchill, Joseph Stalin, and Franklin Roosevelt. And they're entirely different approaches to, you know, their positions during World War II. Yeah. Uh, uh, obvious reasons, Stalin's not one of the favorites, but... Um, <laughs> And now I just start. So the next book I started after that is a book written by an admiral uh, who uh, was a Navy SEAL. He was the longest serving Navy SEAL in the history of the United States military. Um, and, and kind of the development, the thought process. So find stuff that interests you. Uh, yeah. As opposed to listening to the same bubblegum song over and over on the radio is my advice for, for reading <laughs> slash listening material. Yep. Yeah, so that, I guess to wrap up the uh, interview here, you kind of just touched on it, but what's one piece of advice you would give someone younger than you? Which is a whole lot of people at this point in my life. Yeah. Um, the one piece of advice I would give is decide what your passion is and then follow it. And don't let people tell you you can't do it. Mm-hmm. Can't shouldn't be part of that vocabulary. Um, don't say I can't. Say I tried. I like that. Don't say I can't. Say I tried. Yeah, that's definitely. I just like. I like that. Uh, wrapping the shows up with that because. Um, I guess the people I try to get to listen to this are definitely younger than me. They're in college or like just getting into college and they don't really know what they want to do. So that's the whole point of this podcast. And that definitely touches right on what the motto is of the podcast is decide what your passion is and follow it. And then don't say can't say I tried. I like that. (laughs) Good. Well, thank you, Rick, for taking the time to do this. I appreciate it. I definitely learned a lot from this, and I'm, I'm excited to put this one out. So I appreciate you taking the time. No problem. And you take care. We'll talk to you later. Yep. See you later. Sure not.